I'm Taylor. And I'm Kat. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. This week we are exploring the disappearance of 25-year-old London estate agent Susie Lamplew in July 1986. Now, this case was huge in the UK in the late 80s and the early 1990s, but it's kind of faded from public consciousness quite a lot over the past 20 years. So we're um, bringing it back. Yeah, we're, we're pushing it into your consciousness. Kind of. Pushing it in there. Um, on July 28th, 1986, Susie Lamplew left the Sturgis Estate Agency to show a potential buyer around a house in southwest London. Um, and she never returned from the viewing and has not been seen since. Now, almost 34 years have now passed since Susie's disappearance, and there have been many theories paused over the years about what happened to her and who was responsible, but nothing definitive has ever been proven, and that is one of the things about this case that really captured the public's imagination so much back in the 80s and 90s, was that there was just nothing. Yeah. She vanished. Just... Those ones are always kind of wild. It's just like... Yeah. <laughs> but how? Um, so, let's get into the details. Um, Susie was born Susanna Jane Lamplew on May 3rd, 1961, to parents Paul and Diana. She had an older brother named Richard, um, and... That's pretty much all we know. Not a lot else is really known about her early life. Um, and and that's kind of another reason that the, the case captured everyone's imagination and attention so much is because she was just a normal person who went missing in broad daylight and it, it highlighted the, the concept that, you know, it, it could happen to anyone. Yeah. And Susie worked at Sturgis Estate Agency in South London, and which, uh, to our American audience, would be real estate. Real estate, yes, yeah. Which nobody over here understands, and not asking for an explanation. <laughs> right, it's just <laughs> property sales. Yeah, but real, like. Uh, I don't know why ours has that prefix, but. <laughs> But why do you call This is not the time station wagons estate cars? I knew the answer to this once and I don't know. How how have you got off uh, We are three minutes in. Yeah. So Susie worked at Sturgis Estate Agency in South London and July twenty eighth. 1986 began just like any other day the but the last entry in her diary was 1245 mr kipper 35 sherolds or slash s so sherolds refers to an empty property on sherold street uh, in fulham which is in southwest london or slash s means outside the property which I couldn't find for certain, but I presume that meant she was to meet Mr. Kipper outside the property rather than at the agency offices. Yeah, everything I read said that, like, that was yeah. some kind of, like, known shorthand for yeah just meeting them outside. So that it would be a, pretty much a standard, like, viewing as yeah. far as anyone knew. Yeah. Um. Uh, now... It wasn't like Susie to just disappear. So when she didn't return to the office that afternoon, her colleagues contacted her parents just in case um, there had been some sort of like family emergency or something that she had forgotten to, to you know, phone work and, and tell them what was going on. Um, uh, but when her colleagues and family realized that nobody had seen her, um, they contacted the police. Susie's white Ford Fiesta was found that night outside a property for sale in Stevenage Road, Fulham, which was about a mile and a half away from the property where she was meant to be meeting Mr. Kipper on Cheryl, Cheryl's, Cheryl's Road. 
a place in Fulham. Uh, the handbrake was off and the car key was missing, but her purse was found in one of the car door's pockets. And the driver's seat was also pushed like pushed back and it was too far back for Susie to have been able to drive, which led police to suspect that somebody else had driven her car, someone much taller than her. And her desk diary had no contact for Mr Kipper or and nobody else at the agency uh, knew anything about this man. See, that would be the dead giveaway for if someone else had driven my car because, like, I'm a short ass and I sit real close to the steering wheel, so... See, I'm the opposite. See, well, I'm not particularly tall, but I do sit as about as far away from the seat as I possibly can and still be able to, like, put the clutch right down and hit yeah. the brakes. Just because it's, like, more comfortable for me and because you're not supposed to, like sit with your knees pressing against the steering column which i knew someone who drove like that and i was like how can you actually move your feet uh, so yeah if you if you're going to if you're going to dra- kidnap someone and drive their car put the seat back to how back. it was i know hope that it has like those memory seat settings or something that you can just <laughs> press a button and it <laughs> zooms back into place um in the days and weeks following Susie's disappearance, police appealed for information from members of the public and multiple witnesses came forward to report having seen a woman who resembled Susie talking with a man in Sherrill's Road and then getting into a car. But none of these reports shed any light um, on the identity of Mr. Kipper or, you know, whoever it was that Susie was seen getting into the car with. Um and then the investigation into Susie's disappearance was, at the time, the biggest in the history of British policing. But despite the amount of money and resources that were put into the search for Susie, police found no trace of her. And in 1987, the investigation began to wind down and eventually turned cold. So officers who've been interviewed about this say that the police just didn't have the resources to keep looking for her. So in London in the 1980s, it was bedlam. You had race riots. There was a very active um, provisional IRA, you know, very high profile crimes. And a missing person, very sadly, just doesn't feature high on their priority list. Yeah. Um, But before the investigation was scaled back, police carried out DNA testing on more than 800 unidentified bodies. That's a lot I mean, it's, it's not just that it's a lot, it's, it's the 1980s. I mean, DNA, as we think about it, was very, very much in its infancy. Yeah. So, yeah, it is incredible that they did all this testing before it was scaled back. But, unfortunately, that led nowhere. And, nowhere. in fact, DNA profiling had only been used um, to solve a murder for the first time in 1983. Yeah. So, this is just three years later. Yeah, very much... So. Um, because I, I was curious about this, so I was reading through like the Wikipedia page on DNA profiling, and it was like, yeah, there were like three different universities trying three different methods, basically all at the same time in the early eighties, and then mm. in eighty three and like eighty six, the year this case takes place, they were just starting to use the results in court yeah. cases and stuff. So we're early days here. Um, Susie's family weren't going to give up that easily. And within months of Susie's disappearance, they had founded the Susie Lamplew Trust with the aim of helping improve personal safety. Um, their website mission statement reads, quote, our mission is to reduce the risk of violence and aggression through campaigning, education, and support. And um, our vision is a society in which people are safer and feel safer from violence and aggression. We want people to be able to live life to the full. And the family got a lot of shit for this. Like there was so much backlash because people seem to think they should have been at home crying and moping around. But instead they were being like really proactive. And although obviously they couldn't help solve the case because they didn't know any more than anyone else. Mm-hmm they were still, like, trying to help other people and make sure this didn't happen to, to other families. And I don't understand why there was so much hatred about that. I know, like, that's a really good thing. 
Like it's some, yeah. they're turning their their pain and, and tragedy and misfortune into outreach and 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 help for other people potentially, and like that's really admirable. Yeah, and and while we're on this subject of you know looking at this case through a modern lens, so it's next month will be, oh no, this month will be thirty four years. Um, a lot of people have blamed Susie herself for not being more careful and for meeting a stranger in the middle of the day alone. So firstly, fuck that shit. We do not blame the victims. Yeah. Secondly, this happened more than 30 years ago and things were very different. And, you know, we are taught from a very young age now about stranger danger and everything. Um, in the 1980s, it just wasn't as common. I mean, the the whole stranger danger thing started in the mid 80s early to mid 80s so yeah someone who wasn't someone who's born in the 60s that's a whole different state of mind that they're coming up in um and the Susie Lamplew Trust has been responsible for a lot of changes and safeguards that are now in place uh, to protect vulnerable people or just people working and traveling alone so for example in 1998 they were one of the driving forces behind the licensing and registration of minicabs. So up until the late 90s, there was no registry of of who was operating taxi cabs. Yeah, that's wild. I can't that's believe that. That's scary. Yeah. But so that's just like one example of the kind of thing they've done. I mean, they've done a lot of work around like stalking and like personal safety and self-defense and things like that. So, Yeah. I That's think that awesome. is something, yeah, something really positive to come out of something so awful. Yeah. Right. So um, the case fell into the cold case pile. And in 1993, seven years after Susie had last been seen, her family um, had her declared legally dead. Um, and when she was declared dead, the missing persons case was upgraded to a homicide case but still stayed in cold case storage until it was picked up by a cold case team in 1998. Um, They quickly found that the team investigating in the 1980s hadn't really been listening to Susie's family. Hmm. Go figure. Um, Where have we heard that before? (laughs) Everywhere. Um... So, yeah, they hadn't really been listening to Susie's family when they had told them about the circumstances surrounding her disappearance, um, and the original team had failed to follow up on many tips from the public. So, while the story in 1986 had been that Susie had just, you know, poof, disappeared without a trace, with no clues and no information, that just wasn't true. So, a couple of months before her disappearance, Susie had begun dating a man from Bristol, which is in sort of southwest England. It's kind of near the Wel- like the south end of the Welsh English border. Mm-hmm. It's like a hundred, roughly one hundred and twenty miles away from London. Um, but just weeks before she disappeared, Susie had confided in family members that this man was starting to scare her. So she'd already suspected that he was married because he was always like rushing off, leaving dates early, or he was like on the phone all the time. And this is like when you couldn't like surreptitiously text someone under a table. You had to get up and go use a payphone. Yeah. Or like if a restaurant had a, a landline phone, you had to ask them to use it. A little different. Um, and she told them that she was going to end things with this man. And so one one video I watched about this case said that she found him weird because he took her to a motor racing event as a date. I feel very attacked by that. <laughs> that was literally... Like, this family member was telling a story and this was one of the reasons that she supposedly found him so weird. And I'm like, is that really enough? It's not really that weird. I mean, it would totally win me over. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's weird if, if like, you have, like, zero interest in that. But it's, it's not like, it's not like taking someone to, like, attend an autopsy. Right. It's not like, oh, for our second date, would you like to tour this slaughterhouse with me? Like yeah, it's a little, <laughs> it's a little tamer than, than that. <laughs> I'm sure there were many other things. Like I would say the always on the phone and like running off. Um, yeah, that, that sounds, that's more of a red flag 
Yes. Motor racing is more of a checkered flag. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well done. Well done. So, yeah, so Susie's family began to suspect that this boyfriend had stalked her since she ended their relationship and that he could have posed as Mr. Kipper to lure her to the empty property and then kidnap her. But Felice? 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 Felice Navidad. (laughs) Da-da-da-da-da. Okay. um, (laughs) But police? But police never followed this up. Um, not only that, but they also failed to investigate recent releases from prison, which would be something you'd probably want to look at. Um, yes. And there was a day release prison in the Fulham area. But again, police did not look into this sort of thing. But they should have. Yeah, I mean, this is like policing 101. Like, listen to the victim's loved ones about what was going on in the victim's life. Yeah. Look at, you know, if you're in an area where there's a prison, look at recent releases who could have been involved. I feel like that would be the first place I would look. Mm. And it has been argued that this was because Susie wasn't a high priority missing person and she could have just decided to disappear. She could have just up and left of her own accord. So that could be true, but considering the family said that she had told them she'd just ended this relationship with the man who scared her, that to me points more towards foul play than just wandering off to a new life. Yeah, no, totally. And police did eventually issue an apology to the Lampley family in 2002 for their complete and utter failures and incompetence during this initial investigation. And it was during this press conference when they apologised that police announced the name of the prime and only suspect uh, in the murder of Susie Lamplew. So this is 16 years later. Mm-hmm. And that was convicted murderer and sex offender John Cannan. Yes. So, um, born in February 1954, John Cannan had a comfortable middle-class upbringing in the southwest of England Um, He even attended public school, which, unlike in America, in the UK is the term for a very fancy, you know, posh private school. Yeah. So in the UK, you have pretty much you have state schools, which are like American public schools. They are uh, publicly funded. Free to attend. Yeah. Yeah. You have academies, which are a whole other kettle of fish. They are kind of state schools, but they're not as restricted to a curricu- their national curriculum uh-huh. as as normal state schools are. And I don't really understand it because there's a lot of controversy about them. Uh-huh. Then you have private school, which is just your average private school. Some of them aren't even that good. Some of them are utter shit. And then you get public school. So this is like Harrow and Eton and where every fucking politician went to school. Okay, yeah. Um, And they're called public schools because they technically are open to the public. It's not like, it's not like only for certain, it's, I mean, yeah, you can buy your way in, you know, daddy bought the, you know, daddy paid for the library, so I got a place. Mm -hmm. Like that does obviously still happen. But in theory... They are open to anyone if you have the money to go there. Mm-hmm. That is why they're called public schools, even though they are like the most elitist places in this country. <laughs> uh, but rather than be grateful for this really privileged upbringing he had and use it to do something good with his life, John Canan decided being a rapist piece of shit was a preferable life choice. Yeah. And from the age of 15, he was on the police radar as a sexual predator. Although this first reported incident, wherein he assaulted a woman in a phone box, led only to probation. Great. Fuck that. Yeah. No. That's bullshit. Yeah. And I know quite often when it's like first offense and that's like a kind of thing for being like a kind of reason for being like a lenient sentence. And I'm like, is that a good thing? system though because you are literally letting someone get away with a crime and it's also like okay for some crimes not great for sexual assault non-violent crimes fine crimes where you're inflicting bodily harm on someone 
or, or, or taking away their agency. No, you don't get a warning for that. Like, screw that. Um, and this was only the first, or at least the first known, of a lifetime of offences for this career criminal, whose offences included armed robbery, sexual assault, rape, attempted rape, kidnapping, attempted kidnapping, murder, and attempted murder. Lovely. What a resume. Canaan wasn't just your average career criminal, though. He was also uh, known to be a cunning but charming psychopath. Gotta love those. Um, Delightful. Uh, uh, and his MO was to pretend to be uh, a well-off businessman and sort of shower women with gifts and affection. But when they rejected him or the relationship ended, he would either attack them and batter the hell out of them, or he would bide his time, stalk them, and eventually rape them. Um, so Canaan was married for a short period of time in the late 1970s and had a daughter. His wife had tried to leave him multiple times, but he had violently assaulted her and threatened to harm their daughter if she ever left him. Um, and then he eventually left them in 1980 for another woman, but that relationship didn't last long either. In 1981, John Canan robbed a petrol station and a knitwear shop uh, in close succession, both at knife point. Can I just say, when I first read the script and I read knitwear shop, I was thinking yarn shop. And I was like, what? Like a haberdashery. Yes. I was like, why would you no, rob like that? A, a clothing store. <laughs> I, I gathered that later on, but yeah. I was like, <laughs> weird choice, but okay. <laughs> so at the knitwear shop, which I think was a family run shop. So he tied up the shop assistant's mother with tights. And he raped the shop assistant and threatened to stab her baby if she tried to resist or get away. Jesus. And I couldn't find out much more about these assaults because rape victims in this country have the right to lifelong anonymity in the press. And I think that's why the details are so vague because obviously if you put too many details in, it can lead to them being identified. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, yeah. For this cri or these crimes, in June 1981, two armed robberies and one rape, he was sentenced to eight years. Yeah. He's already been convicted of sexual assault as a teenager. It's now escalated to rape and armed robbery. And they thought, oh, eight years, no bother. That'll straighten him out just fine. Yeah, it's, it's not a problem. Clearly, all of these approaches have worked so well so far. It's a fucking insult to the family. No, to is. the victims. And it's clearly, it's an escalation in crime. Uh, by a lot. Yeah. That's this the man thing. is not. He's not slowing no down. intention of, of, you know, becoming a, a useful member of society. Yeah, exactly. Um, and as if that weren't bad enough, he only actually served five years of that eight year sentence. So we've just brought it down three more years. Um, and not even all of those five years were served in a sort of normal prison as, as we would imagine it. Um, the first four and a half years of his sentence uh, were served in HMP Bristol, but in January 1986, he was moved to HMP Wormwood Scrubs, nicknamed The Scrubs, um, which is a prison in Fulham, West London. Um, and as well as housing a normal prison, the Scrubs also had a day release hostel. Um, and uh, as the name would suggest, day release. Um, the inmates there are released during the day, but have to return by a, a, a specific curfew. And on day release, inmates are free to get jobs or do whatever else they want, really. Um, it's kind of like a halfway house, uh, and the, the prisoners that do get day release are, are up near the ends of their sentences. Although he wasn't, he was in the middle, but okay. Yeah. <sighs> um, They're like, oh, you served half your sentence. Yeah. You're not a danger anymore. Goodbye. That's the end. That's, that's, mm. 
It's mm-hmm. totally how fractions work. Um, uh, but if you misbehave in terms of both like illegal activity or if you say miss curfew or don't follow the rules of the sort of like special fun time prison, um, then you'll be sent back to the sort of higher security normal prison where you don't get to go on daily walkabouts. Yeah. So John Canan served roughly six months on day release at the Scrubs before he was released on July 25th, 1986. Three days before Susie Lamplew disappeared. Hmm. And remember earlier when we said that Susie had been dating this guy in sort of early 1986, but she thought he might have been married or at least in kind of a long-term relationship because he was always rushing off early? Well... Susie's family believed that this man was John Canan and that he was always leaving early, not because he was married and, you know, needed to get home to the wife, but because he had to get back to the scrubs before curfew. Yeah, that would fit. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, the scrubs was less than three miles away from the house on Sherald's Road, where Susie was supposed to be meeting Mr. Kipper on the day she disappeared. So, you know, it's it's fair to say that uh, John Canan would probably have known the area. Um, but as we said before, uh, police didn't look into these sort of recent releases from local prisons or the day of release programs. And so uh, John Canan slipped through the net and just sort of went on with his post-prison life. Uh, but John Canan didn't really stay out of trouble for very long and less than 10 weeks after his release from the scrubs he had raped a woman in Reading in southern England he had an alibi and police couldn't hold him but two years later in 1988 the semen sample taken from the victim was tested and conclusively matched to John Canaan and he would eventually be charged and convicted of this offence along with 15 other violent offences against women carried out between his release in 1986 and his arrest in 1988. That's a lot. Yeah. In two years. Um, Yeah. And on October 7th, 1987, so this is roughly nearly 18 months after Susie's gone missing, Mm -hmm. not quite that long, so... Um, he attempted to abduct a businesswoman named Julia Holman at gunpoint from a car park in Bristol. And luckily, Julia managed to fight him off and get away, but she reported it to the police and later identified him as her attacker. But unfortunately, not before he could claim another victim. And this time, he moved on to murder. The night after his failed attempt to abduct Julia, Canan abducted 29-year-old Shirley Banks uh, while she was shopping at the Broadmead Shopping Center in Bristol. He held Shirley in his home overnight and forced her to call in sick to work the next morning under the pretense that if she did as he told her, he would release her. Um, Initially, Shirley's husband Richard was considered a suspect, but he was quickly eliminated. Um, uh, And her calling in sick to work also led police to consider that she might have voluntarily gone missing um in total 150 officers from five different police forces spent 140,000 hours on the case that is a lot it's a, a concerted effort yeah um and it would be three weeks before police finally came knocking on Canan's door but not but that actually wasn't because of Shirley's disappearance Canan had held a shop assistant of a dress shop in Leamington Spa at Knife Point and and attempted to sexually assault her. Um, But two passers-by just happened to look in the shop window and went in to rescue the woman. So he's doing this in broad daylight. Lovely. He is not even hiding anymore. Uh, Canan fled, but he was soon found by police. And upon his arrest, a bloody knife was found in his bag and in his car, they found rope and an imitation handgun. And it was during this search of his car that police found something that linked Cannon to Shirley Banks. Yes. So um, inside a briefcase, which was found in the car, 
There was a scrap of paper, which upon further examination turned out to be part of the tax disc from Shirley Banks's car. And for all you fetuses out there who have never had a tax disc in your car or all our non-UK listeners, because I don't know what countries have tax discs. So car tax or road tax, it used to be a tax that all oh, you paid like per car mm-hmm. and it went into the upkeep of the roads. It's not ring fenced for that anymore. So it's literally an extra tax that drivers pay now. Now you just pay your tax online and it's all in a central database. But you used to have to have a little tax, tax disc and it used to sit in your uh, windscreen in like the bottom the bottom passenger side corner. Yeah. If you like walk down the street and sort of looked at parked cars, you'll f- still see, at least up here in Glasgow, you'll still see a bunch of people with the little um plastic pocket for the yeah loads loads of people still had them like when they stopped issuing discs we still had ours in our cars for ages yeah but yeah so yeah there used to be this little paper disc that said it had the year because you renewed it either every six months or every year so it would just have it would have the date that your tax expired and the month would be in like big numbers Mm -hmm. so that if anyone was like checking, like if a traffic warden or police or someone were like doing like local checks on like parked cars, they would see, oh, it's taxed up to this month and just carry on walking. Yeah. It's kind of like in the States, uh, different states do it differently, but most states do, um, you get little mm-hmm. stickers to put on your um, license plate. So you get, uh, you get yeah. a month sticker. So like, when I registered my car in California, I registered it in May and then the year. And then every year they send you a new year sticker once you renew. Right. Although some places do have um, like one that you put on the inside of your windshield instead. Yeah. Because people will steal the stickers off of people's license plates, which I love. So little, little motoring history for you there. Yeah. Um, just showing our age. <laughs> so uh, police, after finding the portion of the tax disc, police searched the car park for the block of flats that Canan um, lived in, and they quickly found Shirley's car, which had been a sort of distinctive bright orange color, but it had been painted blue and the number plate had been changed. Uh, and now this number plate has become famous uh, with this case because um, Canan changed it from HWL507N to SLP386. And some people believe that SLP stands for Susie Lamplew. And 86 uh, stands for the year that she disappeared, 1986. Um, and now in that uh, interpretation, the three is unaccounted for, but Canaan has been linked to other unsolved disappearances and unsolved murders of young women in the 1980s. So one theory was that Susie could have been his third murder victim. Now on its own, the number plate isn't super significant, but... For someone as arrogant as Canaan, it's it's perfectly believable that he could have changed the number plate to reference Susie or to reference one of his his victims. Um, you know, because it's not uncommon for serial killers or career criminals to taunt the police like that. You know, think about Jack the Ripper or Zodiac or Son of Sam. Like this could be his, um, you know from hell letter if you will yeah and all of this is very speculative and kind of circumstantial but you need circumstantial evidence to make a case as well as forensic evidence yeah you need the two um but the the links to Susie do not stop here we've just a number plate but we'll get to that in a minute and Susie's body was eventually found in April of 1988 in a rural area called the Quantock Hills. 
she had been dumped at a site which was called, I can't believe I have to say this, Dead Woman's Ditch. Yeah. That's not great. I'm just going to breeze past that because I have too many thoughts. Yeah. And she had died from blunt force trauma after being hit repeatedly on the head with a rock. So of the original 16 charges, Canaan was eventually indicted for the murderous Shirley Banks and eight other charges, including rape, kidnap, attempted abduction and indecent assault. And the case went to court in April of 1989. Canaan pled not guilty, but after a three week long trial, the jury took 10 hours to find him guilty on all nine counts. Good. And he is currently serving a Hall of Life tariff at HMP Full Sutton, which is near York in northeast England, with a minimum tariff of 35 years. But because he was imprisoned in the 1980s, that means he will become eligible for parole in 2024. Mm. But he will only be released if the parole parole board rules that he is no longer a serious danger to the public. Uh, And he was born in 1954. Four, so he'd yeah. be 66 He'd be now. 66. He's like a year younger than my dad. He's like, he's two years younger than my mom. Yeah. So, so he, like, he's, he, he's old, but he's not like decrepit old. He's not old. old enough to not be a danger. Yeah, most likely. It's not like a compassionate release. Yeah. Where he's like, um, we did one a few weeks ago that was compassionate release. Oh, um. Faye Copeland. Oh, right. Where, you know, she had a stroke and she just lived in a in a nursing home for a year. Yeah. Until she died. Yeah. If you come out of prison, you know, in even in your late sixties, early seventies, if you're sort of fit and well, you can still pose a significant danger to the public. Yeah. Absolutely. So when uh, the cold case team reinvestigated Susie's disappearance in the late 1990s and early 2000s, more witnesses began to come forward who could link uh, Canaan to Susie. In 1990, an ex-girlfriend of Canaan had told police that he frequently talked about Susie's case and that once while driving past um, former army barracks at Norton in Worcestershire, uh, he had told her that Susie was buried under the barracks. Um, now, most reports say that the girlfriend had been so scared of Canaan that she had waited until he was in prison to come forward. She did later retract her statement to police, um, and some reports state that um, that was because although Canaan was in prison on a whole life tariff, she was still too scared of him to carry on you know, working with the police. Um, and now, of course, as is wont to happen, others have said that she was just seeking attention and trying to cash in on his crimes. You're always going to get that in cases like this. Yeah. You, you're going to get that in every case, but... like, That's a pretty specific... Yeah, people also have a lot of reasons for withdrawing statements to the police. So the cold case team carried out multiple searches of a former barrack site... But whilst the site had previously been an army barracks, in the mid-1980s, it had been sold off and redeveloped as a residential area. So those searches carried out by the cold case team could only go so far because the site was now houses. And obviously you can't get a warrant to dig up houses based on the retracted statement of a former girlfriend. Yeah. Um, and she could have been a completely credible witness. We don't know. But, but it's not because she's retracted that statement it gives them less kind of leaning and it's not enough well really. and also like just the the concept itself of like oh we drove by this place one time and he told me yeah. that this is where you know like that's a lot different than say oh i was taken to this burial site and yeah. so, like, even if she yeah. hadn't retracted her statement, I highly doubt they could have gotten permission to yeah. go through and dig up everyone's concrete slabs to look yeah. for, for bodies. Yeah, I mean, you are a long way from, like, the threshold that the courts would need to grant a warrant to go digging up a housing estate. Exactly. And, yeah, this, this search, as much as they could do without, like, a warrant to start digging the place up, uh, turned up nothing. And this... Um, but in 
2010, uh, a radial scan of the barracks and surrounding area uh, was carried out and that revealed no abnormalities. But just add a bit more into this. Uh, Norton Barracks has a grid reference point of 30806. And Shirley Banks's body was found uh, near an area called Nothing Lane. 386 just to tie back to the number plate theory uh-huh. so that would if Susie's body had been buried buried under the barracks which it could still be and the scans could miss yeah. it that would tie in both crimes uh-huh. and there is a another military site eight miles away called Norton Moor Royal Marine Barracks and um, just in case this far, this farmer girlfriend, in case she maybe got confused between the two sites, um, police went and searched the other Norton Barracks. But once again, nothing was found. Now, some reports say that the girlfriend also came forward again when the cold case team began reinvestigating the case. But others say she just retracted her statement in 1990, soon after making it, and has had no further involvement. So we don't actually know. Yeah. Uh, so in 2001, a former cellmate of Canaan's made a statement to police claiming that Canaan had told him that he would confess to Susie's murder month once his mother had died and that Susie's body was buried beneath his mother's patio. Um, the property was searched in 2002, uh, but we're not entirely sure how extensive that search was and whether or not they searched the garden. But another search in 2018 dug up the garden and patio um, And once again, no trace of Susie was ever found. Now, this wasn't all that his former cellmates had to tell the police. After the cold case team began to appeal to the public for any information about Susie's disappearance, some of Canaan's fellow inmates from the Scrubs in 1986 contacted police to tell them about Canaan's nickname when he was at the Scrubs. And that nickname was Kipper. Killing. Yes, that is, uh, if, if it's not him, then it's remarkably coincidental. Yeah, there's a lot of things kind of adding up now. Yeah. Um, now, not only um, was this, you know, his nickname as reported by his former cellmates, um, it was reportedly a self-given nickname, although we don't know sort of the the story behind that but so it's a nickname he gave himself so he would use it himself most likely yeah not just you know if someone named you snoodle snoodle fruits you probably wouldn't call yourself that in day-to-day life no but you could dear listener if you wanted to be snoodle fruits you could be snoodle fruits you probably isn't a good prison nickname. <laughs> probably not. Most things aren't, I feel like. Um, so another member of the public also came forward to the cold case team. Um, and he said that he saw someone who looked like Susie near the house on Sherald Street getting into a black BMW on the day she went missing. The man had seen a woman matching Susie's description arguing with a man in the car before the car drove away, but he thought that the woman was driving because she was sitting in the front of the car on the right-hand side. Uh, Now, this witness saw the car from behind, so couldn't see the steering wheel. Uh, So keep that in mind for a second. He described a man matching Canaan's description sitting in the front left-hand side of the car. Uh... Now, when police recovered Canaan's vehicles and sought a list of vehicles he had access to following Shirley Banks's disappearance, they found that following his release from the scrubs in 1986, he had access to a left-hand drive black BMW. Yeah, and we are yeah. right-hand drive. Yeah, in the UK. In the UK. You, dri- you, you drive on the right of the car. The steering wheel's on the right and you drive on the left-hand side of the road. Yes. Um... <laughs> Yes, the old adage, is it not that in in the States you drive on the right-hand side of the road, in the UK you drive on the correct side of the road? Yeah, that's about <laughs> it. Um, 
So with that in mind, the witness could have seen Susie being driven away by Canaan, but not realized that it was a left-hand drive car and not thought that she was in any danger because from his perspective or from his assumption, she would have been the one driving. So whilst the various investigative teams who've worked on Susie's case for the past 20 years, since it was revived as a cold case, uh, they're convinced that John Canan murdered Susie, as are many of her, as are her family, many of her friends, and just gen- the general public, really. There is at least one other school of thought amongst some detectives who've worked on the case, and that is that Susie never met with Mr Kipper that day, and that Mr. Kipper never even existed. And I could only find, the only sources I could actually find on this theory come from the Sun and the Daily Mail websites, but stick with it. <laughs> I wasn't happy about having to read them either. <laughs> um, so former detective David Vidaset, uh, who worked on the cold case investigation in the early 2000s, claims to have unearthed significant evidence to prove that Susie faked her disappearance and never had any intention of actually making it to the property on Sherrill Street that day. So David Vincent believes that Susie faked the appointment as an excuse to leave the office because employees weren't supposed to leave the office unattended. And so this theory posits that she knew she would be the only one in at that time and she needed to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and he bases this in part upon the set of keys that should have been used to access the property that day. So the set of keys were found at the estate agent's office. So people thought that Susie had just taken, you know, a second set of keys. But employees at the agency said that if there were two sets of house keys for the property, they would have all been on the same key ring. So based on this, uh, David Vidaset claims that Susie faked the appointment in a diary as a cover for meeting someone else, somewhere else. Um, And she went went to this other appointment that nobody knew about. Mm. And he also believes that the woman seen outside the property at the time of Susie's viewing with Mr. Kipper wasn't Susie and that the witness was just mistaken. Uh, but the witness has since died, so nobody really... Can't double check. Hasn't. No. And he claimed last year to have given the Metropolitan Police evidence of another suspect who he believes to be Susie's killer, but they have so far done nothing. That doesn't necessarily mean that they haven't done anything. It just means that they haven't reported we don't know. anything. Yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, he will still have sources inside the Metropolitan Police, so he could know whether they are or aren't. But yeah. just because it's not being reported in the police in the press doesn't mean the police aren't doing anything. Yeah. So I think that's interesting, but like, there must be a lot more investigation he's done that he's just not talked about because obviously you can't talk about all of it because it would be prejudicial to a trial yeah. if it was reported in the press because that kind of sounds very flimsy to me. Yeah, that's the thing. And like if it's kind of confusing because it's like, oh, well, she faked her disappearance and went somewhere else and covered up this whole thing to like be, you know, mm. out of out of the gaze of the of her office and everything. Yeah. And also just also someone else murdered her. Murdered her? Murdered her. Yeah. That, that's the thing. I mean, why would she, so she faked this other meeting and everything and it's that person that murdered her. Well, did she could also, I, I don't know. It seems a bit kind of disjointed, but that's just the way it's been reported. Yeah. They say this, probably a hell of a lot more information that we don't know that he's handed over so yes we'll see um now another theory kind of branching off from that one is that Susie faked her disappearance and then voluntarily went missing um now if you have listened to our canoe man episode and if you have not Go and do, do it. It will change your life. It's very. It's a. It's a fun. Fun case. It's my hometown crazy <laughs> case. Yes. We did talk in that episode about the fact that there is actually nothing technically illegal about just 
faking your own death and disappearing as long as you're not profiting from said disappearance through like life insurance scams or, or that sort of thing. But of course, this kind of theory comes up with most unsolved disappearances when a person seems to just, you know, vanish off the face of the earth. Um, I mean, we in was it last month, um, month before his Patreon yeah. minisode, we talked about Claudia uh, Lawrence. Claudia Lawrence yep. And there is a theory that she just up and disappeared because they've never found any trace of her. So it is kind of a very common theory when there's no other yeah especially when it's like it's an adult that's gone missing and like i feel like that's one of the first things that always gets floated it's like well maybe they just left yeah typical typical response to that could be true seems like maybe not so currently the case of Susie lamplew's disappearance remains unsolved and none of the leads uh, pointing towards John Canan have led to this discovery of her body or uh, evidence of his guilt. Uh, now, like we said, Canan will be eligible for parole in a couple of years, although the families of his victims are campaigning for him to remain behind bars, understandably. Yeah. Um, sadly, Susie's mother, Diana, passed away in 2011, and her father, Paul, died in 2018 without ever finding out what happened to their daughter. In 1992, Paul was appointed OBE, as was Diana in 2005, for their charity work with the Susie Lamplew Trust. Uh, and that is the case of Susie Lamplew. So what's, what's, what's the, the thoughts on this one? I am inclined to believe she was being stalked. Yeah. Whether that was John Canan or not... I don't know. It could very well be. It is quite convincing. So evidence and so circumstantial evidence. Yeah. I don't think she up and disappeared. I think this it'd be too much of a coincidence for her to just up and disappear when she's also told family members that she's been seeing this guy who scares her. She's going to end the relationship. We know. The most dangerous time for a person in a bad relationship is when they try to yeah. leave. Well, that is when they're mo- most likely to be killed. Yeah, and if I can't have you, nobody. And can. also, like, so, it could very well have been a domestic violence situation that she just didn't tell oh, anyone absolutely. about. Like, that's another thing yeah. that, like, you know, she could have gone so far as to say, "This guy is scary," but not divulged. Yeah the full details of like something else that was happening as well. So, yeah. Um, and it is also a known fact that victims of domestic violence will kind of hedge their bets when it comes to telling people what's going on. Yeah, You reveal a little bit at a time to see how people react. And then, and if you can trust them mm-hmm. um, to help you. So they say it could very well have been a domestic violence situation, but nobody knew about it. But if it was, John Canan, who is known to be a psychopath and a career criminal, then it could easily have been like a, well, if I can't have you, no one can. Yeah, which was like his MO, because as soon yeah. as someone like rejected him, so to speak, he, he you know, he snapped. either assaulted them or stalked them and lived. Yeah. Assaulted them. So. Yeah. I think she, yeah. Pretty like I could easily see that it was Canaan. I could, you know, if if there was another name out there with just as much sort of seeming connections, I could see that too. But yeah. uh I don't think she just walked off and no. and was totally fine after that. Um and like I one of the things that I watched where there were interviews with her, uh, her brother I think. And he was like, it's just, he's like, yeah, some people, they get up, they walk out of their lives, but she wasn't one likely to do that. Yeah. But it just seems like, you know, 35 years later, like something else would have come up if she was still alive or, or had been alive for an extended period of time after her disappearance. And like, 
I I would not be surprised if if Kanan killed her, especially because he seems like he's been, you know, chitter chatting away to various people about about the case at the very least. Yeah. And an interest in the case and seemingly potentially involvement in the case as well. Yeah, and one of the the videos I watched talked about the the girlfriend who made the report about Norton Barracks mm-hmm. said that he would bring up um like bring up Susie's case unprompted. Yeah. Had nothing to do with conversation. Um and would like would bring it up into conversation. So people do do that and people insert themselves into cases as well. Mm-hmm for attention, for notoriety, whatever their motivations may be. But this is a lot of coincidences all around. Yeah, that's the thing. And like... This amount of coincidences don't normally exist. Yes. And um, like it is very rare for the police to come forward and say like, listen, we think... It's this guy who's done it. Yeah. Like, generally speaking, they're not going to hold a press conference and say, look, we did it yeah. wrong. Like, we we f- didn't figure it out then. We have this. Yeah, su- you might They might say, we have a suspect. But they wouldn't, mm-hmm. I don't think, unless they were pretty no. close to being sure without having the sort of legal proof, I don't yeah. think they would have said, here's his name. They don't have the, you know, the proverbial smoking gun, yeah. but they have everything else. And to actually say that he's our one and only suspect, they have to be very sure. Because if not, when he gets out of prison, yeah. they're getting sued for a hell of a lot of money. Exactly. I can also see them back in 2002 being like, he's on a whole life tariff and not being sort of overly overly enthusiastic about taking it to court it's a massive expense to take a case to court it is and if he's already in prison yeah they can be like ah well put it on the back burner for a bit longer especially if there isn't you know an abundance of evidence that would play well in court or or convince a jury kind of thing so yeah when people are on like hall of life tariff i can understand them not being prosecuted for other crimes if there's no chance of of them getting out yeah but however he could be out in less than four years yeah whether that happens or not we don't know um you know after seeing four years but yeah maybe if he maybe as we get closer to his parole date coming up we might see some movement this case develop even more depending upon what evidence they have. Yeah, I could see that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that is our very non-conclusive thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for listening. Come and join us on social media. Join our Facebook group, Square Mile of Made of the Podcast, and tell us your theories. What do you think happened? And if you'd like to read more about this case, uh, Christopher Berry D., who has written many true crime books, wrote a book called Prime Suspect, The True Story of John Canan, The Only Man Police Want to Investigate for the Murder of Susie Lamplew. Catchy title. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, and there is a link to it in the show notes and on our website. Yep. And don't forget to vote for us for the Listener's Choice Award at the British Podcast Awards. Voting closes on July 6th. That is next Monday. Mm-hmm. Go to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. Uh, you have to put your email address in. You don't have to sign up for a newsletter. Um, but they send you uh, an email with a link and you just click the link to confirm your vote. Yeah. It takes two minutes. Yeah, not long. If you have yeah. multiple email addresses, I have about seven or eight. You could vote seven or eight times. Yeah. If you wanted not, to. Not condoning uh, voter fraud, but yeah, please do. Yeah. Not condoning voter fraud in national elections. 
in podcast selections. But, you know, just, just bump us a little bit up off the bottom of that list because we know we're pretty low. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and if you would like to help support the show even more or monetarily, um, you can always become a patron of the show starting from just $1 a month. Um, all patrons get these weekly episodes a day early. Um, $2 and up patrons get some exclusive merch and um, $5 and up gets you access to exclusive bonus content that you will see. As well as the yeah. merch and as well as early access. Yeah. So. so all that's good fun stuff. So if you have some you know, spare change and you want to help out, head over to patreon.com slash square mile of murder to sign up or um, there's links on our website and in the show notes as well. Um, so with that, we shall leave you. Thank you very much for listening. Bye. Bye.